The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Cliff Schechter. I am lucky enough to be filling in for Leslie Marshall in her doing her great show today. The uh, mysteries of uh, modern technology put me somewhere in Cincinnati, um, but uh, I'll be with you for three hours. Looking forward to it. We've got some great guests coming up. Um, as you may all know, it's, uh, it's been quite a week for Donald Trump. Um, not his best week. I promise you probably not his worst. We'll get to him uh, in a little bit, talk some polling, talk some bone spurs. Um, but first, uh, you guys may have, have been paying attention more recently. There's been a lot of great work going on um, around the innocence projects across the country. I'm lucky enough to, to be involved with one here uh, in the state of Ohio. Um, you may have seen Making a Murderer, about uh, the, the one in Wisconsin that's been on. Uh, I believe it's Netflix. Um, there's, in, you may have seen, I think it's Tom Goldwyn who got up and he's a big supporter of the Innocence Projects and spoke at the Democratic National Committee. And I'm lucky enough to have with me here the director of the Ohio Innocence Project, Mark Godsey, who has been a terrific proponent uh, of the group in one of the, the best groups in the country and probably the world. And so I'd like to start off by uh, welcoming Mark to the show. Hey, thanks, Cliff. Happy to be on. My pleasure. Good to have you on here, Mark. So uh, there's been a lot going on lately, and I figured today you might, you know, I think it was today in Delaware, um, there was a ruling, I think it's the Supreme Court there, that uh, declared the death penalty unconstitutional. I wanted to see if you have any thoughts on that and how that might relate uh, to, to the movement going forward. Yeah, well, the death penalty has been falling more and more in disfavor over the past, I think, you know, 20 years. And a lot of it has to do with the innocence movement. I mean, when you have a system which for decades and decades believed it never made mistakes and that if you were convicted by a jury of your peers, you were absolutely guilty. And, in fact, we had Supreme Court justices saying that. Um, and then all of a sudden you have this great gift come along, which we call DNA testing, which uh, proves that that's a fallacy. And, in fact, you know, many more people than anybody would have ever suspected in prison are actually innocent. It makes people start questioning whether, you know, the death penalty is something we should continue to be doing because, obviously, if somebody's in prison, you can let them out. I mean, as tragic as that is, if they spent time in prison for something they didn't do, but if they've been executed, that's an irreversible punishment. Um, and so um, yep. in recent years, the um, support for the death penalty has waned across the country, and surveys show that a lot of that has to do with uh, the work of the Innocence Projects and exonerating the innocent. Um, and I think this um, decision by the Supreme Court in Delaware is just the next step along that evolution. Yeah, I think you're implying there the sort of mindset of some of the justices, not to speak uh, ill of the dead, but I believe it was the late Antonin Scalia uh, who, who had said that, uh, I guess, you, you, you know, it's completely within our system that you can have a fair trial, be innocent, and still, in the end, be put to death if, they, if you're incorrectly found guilty. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know about you. That disturbs me a little bit. Yeah, it doesn't I'm sorry? the Constitution to execute someone who's innocent as long as they had a fair trial. That was, Maybe uh, we can make that into one of those Saturday morning songs for the kids. You know, like, yeah. I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's kind of heartwarming. It's, it's very heartwarming. Um, but, I, you know, yeah. I will say I, I've learned a lot just watching you here. And to disclosure, everybody, I sit on the board of the Innocence Project here. But it's Mark who may, and, and people, the lawyers and the students who make everything happen. Um, you know, I've gotten to see up close uh, – I've learned, let's say, I had some skepticism before, but we've seen numerous cases where where people have been bullied, obviously, when the police have brought them in, they've admitted things that did not occur. I was wondering, you know, if you could talk more. You've got a book coming out in a year on eyewitness testimony um, and showing us how it, in fact, is not, you know, picture perfect, so to speak. It is not an exact recollection. In fact, it's very questionable science. I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and maybe even tie it in with some of what we've seen here with Ricky Jackson, for example, who was on death row for 30 – or not on death row the whole time, but was on death row, was in prison for 39 years before being released, breaking a pretty sad kind of record. Uh, you could tell us a little bit more about what you're looking at and, and hopefully how that may change some of these cases in the future. Yeah, well, Ricky Jackson, you mentioned he's one of our clients, and, and so far um, in our 13 years of existence, we've freed 24 Ohioans on grounds of innocence uh, who together served, I think it's about 450 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And Which puts you, you're not going to brag, Mark, but it puts you in the top two in the country. So I want to make sure people know how successful you've been. Now, sorry, I'll let you continue. Oh, thanks. Yeah, but Ricky Jackson um, has the dubious distinction of setting the national record. He's one of our clients who served 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, almost 40 years. And some of that was on death row, and he escaped death row because of just technicality back in the 70s. He would have been executed. He came within a couple months of his execution date, if not for this error that occurred in the paperwork, which caused his, him to be kicked over to life in prison rather than death row. But you know, if not for that, he would have been executed a long time ago, and in fact, he's innocent. Some people may remember if they watched the Democratic town halls when uh, Bernie and, and Hillary were in Columbus, Ricky asked Hillary a question, asked her to justify her position on the death penalty in light of what happened to him. And I think that sort of went – the clip of that the next morning sort of went viral. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in any event, yeah, I've, I've written a book about these experiences, and, and I think one of the things that um, my book um, illustrates is I used to be a prosecutor, and so I had to go through sort of a conversion and an enlightenment if you if – you, if you will, about the problems in our system because I didn't believe that they happened <clears throat> until I um, got out of that role and started, you know, in, in academia and got involved in the Innocence Project and sort of slowly realized all these problems. And, you know, the book is about that conversion and about that enlightenment, but also focusing on the psychology that's come out of this movement. I mean, it's not just the, the fallibilities of eyewitness identification, but, um, you know, we, we've really started to realize how malleable human memory is and how easy it is through, you know, police suggestion to get witnesses to change their statements and remember things differently than they originally saw and they originally remembered without even remember, without even knowing that their memory has been, you know, manipulated. Um, you know, even yeah. convincing people that they committed crimes and confessing to crimes they didn't commit wow. after hours and hours of interrogation and intense pressure. Uh, but, you know, other psychological phenomena are at work here, like um, confirmation bias, where we have you know, experts, so-called CSI experts, which, by the way, the CSI stuff on TV is, 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 a, is a myth. Um, <laughs> the innocence movement has proven that a lot of these forensics are highly unreliable. Um, but, you know, there's been studies recently that have shown, for example, that if you if you 
take fingerprints and you ask a fingerprint expert to um, do a comparison and you tell them beforehand, we think this is a guy who committed a crime, uh, they're much, much more likely to come back and find a match. Uh, wow. You set it up the opposite way and you say, you know, we think this is somebody who's innocent, do a comparison. And so, you know, what we feed, the contextual bias that we feed these experts before they do their analysis has great um, influence in what they ultimately conclude. Um, but yet in our system, we continue to have, you know, not take these precautions. And it's routine for prosecutors and police officers to sort of tell forensic experts before they start what the right answer is. And in fact, I did that when I was a prosecutor. So there's a lot yeah. of work we have to do to clean things up. No, I think that's going to be incredibly important because I found that my eyes are open doing some of the work with the Innocence Project and seeing, uh, you know, we all assume that some things are not above board, let's put it that way. Uh, but seeing how often sometimes you get in closed rooms and these guys will be pressured and, you know, it, you learn a lot about our justice system and how fragile it can be. I think a lot of people around the country have learned, was sadly, some of these police shootings that are caught on video. And again, this isn't to disparage police. There are many terrific police, but just the fact that, you know, before video, a lot of this stuff was going on. I feel like that opened people's eyes the way the Innocence Project work has opened mine. And maybe your work will, will take that another step is what I'm hoping and say so we, people won't just say, well, somebody saw them do that. Two people saw them do that. Uh, and that automatically, of course, means that it must have happened. Um, to, to continue with that, you're doing a lot of work internationally, too, which I think is incredibly important. I thought we might get uh, your take on that. Like, you know, you've gone to China and a number of other countries. Um, you want to yeah, talk? Well, well you know the Innocence Movement, you know, really caught hold in the United States over the last couple of decades and is continuing to grow. But in the, just the past five or six years, it's really become an international um, movement. And there's an innocence network now of different innocence projects all across Latin America. Uh, I was in Prague last month at the European Innocence Network Conference where we had representatives from 16 different European countries. There's about, you know, eight to ten projects now in Asian countries, including Japan and China, and Taiwan, and Singapore, Philippines, all over the place. So um, it's something that, you know, is really exploding because regardless of the, the system, your criminal justice system, you know, how it operates and what the specific rules are, because those vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. All jurisdictions prove guilt the same way. They use eyewitnesses. They use intense police interrogation hey, Mark? to get people to confess. Yeah. Mark, I, so I don't want to interrupt you. Yeah. We're about to go to a break. Well, why don't we, we pick it up when we get back? Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. This is Cliff Schechter once again. I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. Somehow uh, somebody tricked her into giving me this microphone, so you're stuck with me for about another two and a half hours. Let's make it fun. Um, once again, we have Mark Godsey on the line, director of the Ohio Innocence Project. Let me bring you back in, Mark. And you were talking a little bit about the international work you've done, which is uh, incredibly important um, within, as part of the Innocence yeah, Network. Let me let you go. The, you know, the movement has been really sort of popular here in the United States the last couple of decades, gotten a lot of press, you know, 
even more so recently with Making a Murder on Netflix. Uh, but in the last five or six years, it's really exploded across the globe. And, um, you know, regardless of the system of justice or, you know, the procedures vary from from uh, country to country, but everyone uses the same types of evidence, like eyewitness identification, interrogations through police, um, uh, or excuse me, confessions obtained through police interrogation, uh, forensics, and all the sort of things that can lead to inaccurate results. They're all the same from country to country. So it really is something that we can um, share and learn from each other. And um, and what, what we realize is whenever people start doing this work, no matter what country they're in, they start finding wrongful convictions. Um, right, because it's a human problem. Yeah, well, and you started off as a, as a prosecutor too. So, how'd you go from the world of prosecuting, uh, you know, being the tough, I'm sure Rudy Giuliani type that you were, um, to come on over to, the, to to this side? Yeah, I was a, a prosecutor in New York City and um, handled a lot of felony cases and was sort of a prosecutor's prosecutor. And um, I went into academia after a while and you know, became a professor and. Um, it was an innocence project at that law school already. It was a different law school than where I'm at now. And uh, the professor who was running it was on sabbatical that year. And since I was the, the new criminal law professor on the block, they asked me to run it. Um, you know, and I had the criminal investigation background as a prosecutor. And I was, I was very reluctant. And um, you know, just like a lot of prosecutors, just thought, you know, this is kind of uh, BS. I'm very skeptical that there's actually innocent people in prison. And I can remember my first meeting with the students. They had just come back from visiting an inmate in prison. And we're just going on and on about how they just believed he was innocent. I remember thinking how naive they were. Um, and then DNA testing was conducted and actually proved this guy innocent. He was released. Um, so I had, to, I had to eat crow, and I um, you know, began looking into the issue more. And because I was supervising this innocence project that year, I had to go to the annual conference where I met exonerees, people who had been wrongfully convicted from all across the country. And so it was just slowly... Um, an experience of, of information that sort of took away the, the bias and the, the clouds I'd had over my eyes, and I was able to see um, more clearly the problems in the system. And so um, a few years later, I was able to get a job at, in Cincinnati in my hometown and I, as a professor, and I so then became, you know, I was fully a believer by that point. So I um, founded the Innocence Project here in Ohio. It's, it's amazing. I would say, you know, it almost sounds like a Hollywood script. It writes itself, Mark. You're like the, the hard-hearted prosecutor putting these guys away. You don't believe it. And then you get to see it firsthand. It happens by accident. It happens by accident. Right. You get to see it firsthand. And, and now, I mean, I guess for people who haven't met you, I mean, I, I would have to, you know, paint a picture of what a true believer you are and, you know, how emotional this is because we mentioned Ricky Jackson who got out of, after 39 years. But when you see these guys come out of prison – I mean, it's it's the equivalent. You've saved a life. I mean, you know, you are giving people who have had their lives taken from them due to no fault of their own, often due to racial bias and other matters, you're giving them their lives back. Well, Ricky Jackson, as you mentioned, he was freed less than two years ago after almost 40 years in prison. And his security level was so high that for almost 40 years, he had never seen the night sky. He'd been allowed outside, but only during the daytime. And, um, you know, we freed him, and he walked out of the prison, and, you know, he walked out, and the first thing he did was look up at the sky and, and start crying. It was just an unbelievably moving moment. And, um, you know, every night, it's his first night to freedom, he just basically walked all night. He didn't sleep because he hadn't seen the stars in, uh, in four, almost 40 years, as you can imagine. Oh, my gosh. No, I mean, it's hard to imagine. And the other thing I think that's really hard to imagine about all this, and, again, I couldn't have imagined it before I saw this, 
is how, you know, I, mean, I believe Tom Goldwyn, when he got up and spoke at the Democratic National Convention, mentioned this, is the forgiveness that these guys have, which is incredible to me. And I, I think, in a way, it's self-preservation, because if you let the hate eat you up, um, you know, we, we, we've seen a presidential candidate currently who has hate eating him up every day. It's not a pretty picture. Um, these guys have legitimate reasons to hate. And, uh, you know, the, I've seen them forgive people who identified them wrongly in Ricky Jackson's case and forgiven people who put the police who put. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, maybe you could speak to that for a second. Yeah, I mean, um, there's I want to go back to actually to a point that I think relates that you mentioned earlier about all sure. of this um, being discovered recently, the police shootings because of the, the you know, people have cell phones and smartphones and they can videotape things. Um, and I like to call that little brother. I mean, we talk about big brother of the, you know, the government someday having recordings and videos everywhere. So there's no freedom or privacy. Um, but the opposite has happened so far. We have armed the citizens with the ability to record the government at any time, um, which I like to call little brother, which has just been an amazing revelation um, in terms of discovering the truth of, of the interactions that often occur or sometimes occur between the police and, and the citizenry. And, and that's something that's going to continue, I think, with um, wrongful convictions, because I think we're going to have to get to the point where um, basically every interaction between the police and um, citizens are recorded. So we have a clean record of what happened. And if that does occur, we're going to be able to record interrogations. We're going to see what happens in the interrogation room. You know, the, the public right now is fascinated with making a murder on Netflix. Um, right. And everyone who saw that, you know, saw the interrogation of Brandon Dassey. Um, well, the only reason we know what happened in that interrogation room was because Wisconsin had recently passed a law requiring the videotaping of these interrogations. And if that hadn't been the case, I mean, this would have been sold in the media and by the, the prosecution and the police as a rock-solid confession, where now that we have the videotape, we saw that's not true. Um, and so, you know, I, I think this is the key to the future, both in preserving civil rights and in protecting people's rights vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government, but in, in fighting wrongful convictions is just – Having recording body cams, having police interrogation room cameras, um, all this kind of stuff, you know, just basically creating little brother. We're keeping an eye on the government, um, and we need to make sure that we continue to do that. Well, well I think that's our break. Thanks so much, Mark. Um, this guy's a rock star. You can follow the Innocence Project at Ohio in Proj. Find it on Twitter. And thank you so much for, for being on the show, Mark. Thank you very much. Take care, Cliff. You too, man. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Once again, back on, sitting in for Leslie Marshall. 
on the great Leslie Marshall show. Um, we have got a fantastic guest coming up, Alex Lawson, the executive director of Social Security Works, good friend of mine and uh, compatriot. Are, are you with us, Alex? I'm here, Cliff. How are you, my friend? I'm really good. How about you? I'm doing great. This radio hosting stuff is actually fun. Yeah, and I mean, I, we all know how good you are at it, so, you know, that, that's what makes it fun. Oh, uh, well, you're too kind. You just wait. As the hours drag on, you'll see when I start passing out and resorting to who knows what to keep myself going. But in the meantime, let's, uh, let's talk about an important issue. You have, have been incredible over the past couple of years at Social Security Works at first beating back attempts to uh, cut Social Security as part of a grand bargain, as part of any other bargain they can think of. You guys mainstreamed the very mainstream idea of increasing Social Security. What do you know? Um, because it's not uh, enough money to be able to take care of those who, who need it and rely solely on it. Um, and uh, that has now gotten the support of the President of the United States, among many others. So it seems like, like with many other issues, if they can't go directly at something and get rid of it, they find alternative means. Um, and in this case, if I am correct, and I certainly would like you to correct me uh, if I'm not, we, what they've done is within a, a House budget, uh, instead of giving President Obama what he requested, the House Appropriations Committee has decided uh, to, to give a, a lot less money, in fact, to the Social Security Administration so that we'll, we'll be looking at things like a 10-day furlough for Social Security employ agency employees, uh, hiring freezes. So in other words, they're going after the agency itself. Uh, I think it's, would they give 1.2, uh, 263 million less is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, what uh, you and uh, our allies are doing to make sure this does not indeed occur? Yeah, you know, I, your setup really put most the the information that that's necessary there. We we, you know, in in 2010 quote-unquote, everybody knew that benefits uh, had to be cut, and the only question was by how much. Um, but that everybody was really just people in Washington, D.C. and New York. It's actually greedy liars on Wall Street, and they're minions in D.C. Um, everyone else in America Tell us was how like... how you actually feel, Alex, instead of holding back. <laughs> everyone <laughs> else ahead, was like... No, you're not cutting my Social Security. That's mine. I earned it. And, and everyone else is right. It is ours. We do earn it. Uh, it's our money. We see it going in in uh, all of our paychecks, and it's there for us when we need it. That's why everybody loves Social Security. Um, so over time and with great organizing and, and you know, fantastic allies and coalitions, we were able to change the conversation. Uh, and, you, and you saw it during the primary fight that the, the conversation had changed to actually how much are we going to expand benefits. Uh, and that's where the Democrats were. Um, and now it is written into the platform, and, and Hillary Clinton has stated uh, in her acceptance speech that she plans to expand expand social security so this is That's amazing this is what's happened when we're able to get the voices of the american people into dc uh and 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 have folks in dc listen to them and and i should be clear this is not a partisan issue 70 percent of americans of all political parties and affiliations want to expand social security 85 percent of democrats 70 percent of all americans 
want to expand Social Security and pay for it by asking millionaires and billionaires to pay the same rate as the rest of us. So, right. that's no, this, I mean, we've got go this ahead, setup, um, and the, 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 it's like, exactly like you said, so these greedy liars on Wall Street and their minions in D.C., they never stop. Um, and, and everyone should know why. It's, it's the $2.8 trillion that are held in trust for the American workers um, that we have paid in. And Wall Street just cannot stand that they can't loot that. So, There's a big pot of money there, Alex. Come on. Come on. So if they can't attack it. trade that, you know? If they can't attack it from the front, just like you said, what they're trying to do uh, is, is uh, to attack it from the side, to try to undercut it, to use sneaky budget tricks um, to what we've called it is a death by a thousand cuts. So you, you laid out a 10-day furlough on employees, uh, agency-wide hiring freeze, but I think what your listeners should also know is this also means reduction in local offices, right, so uh, in the hours that they're open. So the American people try to go to their office to get the benefits that they've earned to, to information about them, and the office is closed because the Congress has decided to do that. Um, we're talking about permanently closing some field offices, right? So you live um, outside of an area that, that the Congress has deemed uh, doesn't need an office, and you're out of luck. You have to now travel you know, hundreds of miles to the next office. Um, increased wait times on the telephone, and an increased processing time for benefits, right? These are real right. problems for the American people. And I know I've just filibustered you, but let me, let me point out the, the worst part. Hey, man, part. You're, doing my, you're doing a great job. I can sit back here and, and have a beer. You go for it, my friend. <laughs> let me just <laughs> tell you the worst part of all of this. So, as you know, and we've just discussed, our Social Security benefits are ours because we earn them, right? We pay in. And it's, it's withheld from right. our paychecks, and then that comes back to us in the form of benefits. Now, here's this thing, 99 cents, 99 cents out of every dollar that goes into the system comes back to us in the form of benefits, 99 cents. That's actually why Wall Street is so mad, because they see that ludicrous efficiency, and they see a missed opportunity to make profit, right? They would definitely whack on another 25% so they could buy another golden yacht to come out of their golden yacht. Uh, but what we're talking about... Where do we about, get those? Go ahead, sorry. What, we're, what I want to uh, focus on, though, is that that last one cent, that goes to yep. pay for administration, right? But notice here, it's still coming out of our contributions, we don't just pay for the benefits. We also pay for the administration to get those benefits. We pay for the salaries of the SSA employees. We pay for the offices that we go to to access information. We pay for the 1-800 number that we call when we want information. It's our money, and the Congress is just reaching into our pockets and saying, no, I'm going to take that just because I want to. That's really the despicable So wait, are you, trying to make, are you trying to make the ridiculous point that because we pay for it, we should actually get it? 
<laughs> exactly. I, 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 yeah, seriously, everything you said makes – and even the administrative costs, it seems, are so low – which reminds me of how, you know, we always hear about the private sector is supposed to be so much more efficient. Uh, but whether it's Social Security or Medicare, many of these programs, it turns out that, that the, the overhead, the administrative costs are actually rather low. And uh, th- that's amazing. You couldn't get any lower. Um, the, 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 it's not just that the private sector couldn't do there – is, there is literally no possibility that the private sector – could do what Social Security does, an inflation-protected annuity uh, that you can't outlive, plus about $1.5 million in disability and life insurance each um, that every working person in America and their dependents have, um, all in Social Security. Isn't it also the largest social insurance program, if I'm correct, for children? Oh, nine million cho- children, either directly or indirectly, uh, rely on Social Security. It's actually the largest children's program in America. Interesting. Um, the thing about Social Security is it works so well that it kind of recedes into the background for people, right? It re- it's like it's not people don't notice it because it works so well and efficiently. Um, and, and to be honest, which, and, and to, again, forcefully state my opinion, that's why they hate it. That's why the Republicans and the right wing hate it. They don't, they hate it because it works. They hate right. it because it proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that when we work together, that when we create structures like Social Security, uh, we can do things that we can't do on our own and that the private sector cannot offer. Yeah, I think what we should do maybe is get uh, that paragon uh, of values and virtue out there. Paul Ryan, he used some of these benefits. i got to jump to a break. We'll come right back, Alex. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. This is Cliff Schechter, and I am sitting in for Leslie Marshall today on the wonderful, fantastic, fantabulous Leslie Marshall show. She's given me the mic, and I am lucky enough to be able to run with that mic and talk to the great Alex Lawson, the executive director of Social Security Works. Alex, are you there, my friend? I'm here, Cliff. So we were talking about how great this program is, the death by a thousand cuts. Um, it reminds me in some ways of what's going on with abortion rights, which is when they can't change the law, they find ways to not let you actually access the law that protects you. Right, so you say the halls are too thin in this, in you know, in this surgical center. You cannot use it. Uh, this reminds me somewhat of that. You know, there were the furloughs uh, for workers with the cost cuts and the hiring freeze and the rest. So yeah, your social security, excuse me, social security payments are there. You're just not going to be able to find a way to access them. Um, it, and, it's a go ahead. it's a really well trod right wing uh, strategy that they that they in, employ against. Um, Basically, when they know they can't win the fight fairly, 
Um, <laughs> I've heard it, and, and they definitely use it against the post office as well. So I've heard the metaphor of saying what they do is they kneecap the mailman, and then they complain that the mail is late. Uh, and then they say you should switch over to uh, you know, this private mail service or private social security service. Um, in terms of abortion, I think they just try to get rid of it altogether. Um, but right. they, they attack uh, from the side. They work to undermine confidence. They know they can't win in an actual open debate of ideas. Uh, so they do things like um, undercutting people's confidence in their Social Security system. But here's how it works on this specific one. Mm-hmm. What they're hoping is that when you go to the Social Security office and the hours are restricted, that you go, oh, man, I can't believe Social Security did this, right? Right. That's what they hope. And and oftentimes that is how it is, right? People get angry at Social Security. But the thing is, it's not Social Security. It's definitely not the Social Security workers who are doing it. It's Congress. It's the members of Congress. And that is the one thing that I I really hope your listeners um, take away from this, is that it's members of Congress who are doing this. It's the Appropriations Committee, uh, and that means that really all people have to do is contact your representative. Uh, Give them a call. uh, Send them some emails. You know, they still use fax machines. Send them a fax. (laughs) Uh, Carrier pigeon, too? Yeah, Carrie, I don't know if they count that, because um, there is actually, I mean, being... Couldn't you see... Ch- tallies, um, of couldn't you see Chuck Grassley? I mean, be honest with me, couldn't you see Chuck Grassley using carrier pigeons? I could. He, I think, probably, uh, they count in for him. For him alone, I think they probably count. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you're right. And it's like with all these issues, Social Security is, is the same which is you've got to call your representatives, you've got to call your senators, they've got to hear your voice, because they will find ways to not spend money on the things that we need, see Zika virus, for example, and to spend money on all sorts of ridiculous things we don't need, airplanes that will sit in a hangar somewhere, for example, um, among other things. More tax giveaways, tax expenditures for the greedy liars on Wall Street so that they can get yet another gold-plated helicopter. I love you, man. Have you have you uh, gotten a trademark for that phrase, the greedy liars on Wall Street? No, but uh, when I do go on um, Talk Poverty Radio, which is a fantastic program sponsored by the Center for American Progress on We Act Radio. Um, great, great radio I get, station. I don't, I don't get paid for that either. Uh, but when I, when I go on Talk Poverty Radio and I use that phrase, they do ring a bell now. They say I use it so much <laughs> that they had to come up with some – some system of calling it out so i get a bell rung every time i say it's the greedy liars on wall street the thing is it literally is greedy liars on wall street who are funding this and have funded this campaign against social security literally from the day it was enacted uh until today 81 years later yeah and we're about to have a birthday come up right two weeks or so a week and a half Ten days is uh, Social Security's 81st birthday. Um, and if you let me uh, continue on my stump here for a second, I can tell I'm going to let you continue. I'm enjoying it. Go. 81 years through boom time and bust, through war and peace, 
Social Security has never missed a single payment. It is the rock that the American people can count on. They can't count on risky investments with Wall Street. We saw in 2008 that we can't count on home equity. Uh, we can't count on 401Ks that we saw turned into 201Ks. But through it all, Social Security has never missed a single payment, and it never will. That's the thing, is that even if Donald Trump figures out how to use, or even if he figures out what the nuclear triad is and how to use one of those weapons, I'm telling you that Social Security will still be delivered. The checks will still be delivered. That's important to know. Uh, and speaking of Donald Trump, Yes, my, my little segue there. I'm interested, though, seriously, from your perspective, because clearly he's, he's decided to move away from running as sort of a conservative catering to white America candidate to go full nationalist xenophobia, uh, and, you know, become one of those sort of European far-right parties, um, which always existed in the Republican Party, but their nominee has been smart enough not to say some of those things out loud, even if they thought it. So being that he's doing that now, he's also on some issues pretending he's with working people, uh, so that he, you know, and, and where he, technically you'd call him, I guess, more liberal or not as crazy, whatever. So he said but he's I, not going to touch Social Security. What would you say about him and Social Security, Alex? I, th I, I, I agree with your setup. It's, I, I've been calling it authoritarian populism, right? So that, yep. that uh, and I don't want to get into ideological, you know, like the questions of, of ideology, but we saw that he was able to actually distance himself in the primary from the other Republicans by pretending to be against cuts to Social Security, by pretending to be against uh, trade policies for the elite by the elite that have decimated manufacturing in America. You know, totally disregarding that these are long-held, constant, uh, uh, you know, single-minded focus of the Republican Party. But and his running mate, specifically, right? <laughs> definitely Pence. But I, I'm, I'm definitely choosing the word that he pretended that the whole time. Because, you know, Donald Trump, you know, before he ran, he wrote a book he called Social Security, a Ponzi scheme. Um, his, his main policy guy goes in front of a room full of greedy liars on Wall Street. Um, <laughs> the main greedy liar, whose name is Pete Peterson, uh, and his and Donald Trump's policy guy goes to his convening and he just lays it out. He just promises them, of course, we're going to cut Social Security. As soon as he's president, he's going to cut Social Security. Um, it's a clear I, distinction. This cycle, for for too many years, there hasn't been a clear enough choice. But now there is. It's really clear. The Democrats are the party that is fighting to expand Social Security to increase benefits and pay for it by asking millionaires and billionaires to pay their fair share. And the Republicans are the party who want to dismantle Social Security, sell it off brick by brick, and give the profits to the greedy liars on Wall Street. <laughs> that was the perfect ending, Alex. We are coming to an end, but I want people to be able to know where they can find you and your work should, should they choose to want to hear more about the greedy liars on Wall Street. Uh, just go to socialsecurityworks.org. Uh, we've got all sorts of materials there, state reports. You can sign up to stay involved. You can sign a petition against the greedy liars on Wall Street and their minions in D.C. Uh, it's all there at socialsecurityworks.org. Thank you so much, buddy. Uh, you've really helped uh, a lot of people understand a lot more about the program. Have a great day.